So how's everyone doing today? Today, it's Luke chapter 18. Sam told me to do the announcements and then just keep on talking. So that's what we're going to do. So Luke chapter 18, we'll go ahead and (laughs) consider that passage. If you need a Bible, put your hands up. We'll make sure one is dropped off to you. Little, little Josh is in the back, heavy laden with scripture, so you can, you can pop your little digits up in the air, and one will be dropped in your paw. So, no one else? All right. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together, and Lord, the awesome opportunity it is to be with your people, to open up your word with them, and to consider what you might have to say this morning. Pray, Lord, that you'd speak to each and every one of us individually and personally, that we draw close to you, and Lord, we'd receive a bounty from you. And so I do praise you, and it's in your name. Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so every preacher has what they, they, they call a hobby horse, and maybe you're familiar with this title, um, you, you know, and for various preachers, it's different. I'm, I'm having trouble locking my legs in so that they don't dangle. But, but, you know, it's, it's different things and different preachers. You sit under them for any length of time. You begin to notice the consistencies of their, their sermon patterns. And maybe it's missions and maybe it's evangelism. Maybe it's some heavy doctrine. But there's something that that preacher always likes to talk about. And, and we call that a hobby horse. And for me, it's not so much of a hobby horse as it is a hobby text. And I find that there's this one text that I always return to, and I'm often drawn to my knees before, and I always uh, receive a, a great marvelous truth from it every time I come uh, into reading it. And, and so that's what we're going to consider today. And, and since the, the choice is mine to pick as I please, I thought, that, I thought that this was the passage for you wonderful people this morning. So we'll go ahead and begin in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. And to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's few passages that are more personally probing for me, and at times I'm the, the broken publican, at other times I'm the, the pious Pharisee. And, and I think if we were to be honest that we might change places several times a day. Hey, here comes Mark Lopez. Wow, that was inappropriate to say during a message. And this morning we'll consider these two, these two persons. Hey, Mark, you just got a special announcement. And, and the implied third person in this passage, and these will become your three notes if you are a note taker this morning uh, for you to mark down. We're going to begin with the, the pious Pharisee. But before we discuss him, we need to reconsider everything that we know about him because if you were raised in the church, 
then there are certain words that you hear and they seem to generate certain images in your mind almost uh, instinctively. You've been conditioned to hear words and, and think things and, and it's not necessarily bad, uh, but at times it, it can be quite, uh, quite detrimental to the furtherance of our Christian education. If I were to say something like, uh, well, well that, that girl's a Delilah, most of you would know what I'm talking about. You would understand immediately that that woman was a, a lady of loose morality. If I were to look at a guy and say, oh, that boy's a David, most of you would understand automatically that, 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 that I mean to say that that person has a heart after God himself. And we do this commonly. We, we don't call it the church. We call it the body of Christ, and we complicate it and confuse it. And people on the outside might be confounded by it, and, 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 but, but we, we, we do this in so many ways. And, 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 and if you were to come in here today, and maybe someone were to come up to you and say, well, how are you doing today? And you might look at them and say, blessed. And then the other day of the week, you would say, I'm good, I'm great, I'm grand, I'm super, I'm spectacular. But today on Sunday, you say you're blessed. And I loved Bible college for this reason. And I would walk around and I would often just mark down the conversations because they were, they were gloriously laden with this language. And you would hear people and they would be talking to one another and they would you know, say things like, I went to this totally anointed service the other day and the Lord convicted my heart to, to be set on fire and I started speaking in tongues. And if you understood everything I just said, then you got an A on the test and you're quite familiar with the language. But you need to understand that you speak somewhat of a foreign language. You've got a name for this language. But it's a language that largely the world's unfamiliar with. And I was at a big O tires. Uh, it was about a year ago now, I think. And, and I'll, I'll date it further back because it makes me sound more godly in the story. This, this was 10 years ago at least. 20. 30. I'm not 30. But it was before I was born. And, and I was there and I was waiting for my car. It was being serviced inside. And I was sitting there reading my Bible, working on a message. And there was this young lady sitting next to me, and, and she was vigorously chewing her gum. And she looked at me, and she said, uh, so you're a Christian, right? And, I, and I, I looked at her, and how can I not capitalize upon the opportunity? I mean, it's, it's so rare that fish jump into your boat. I didn't have to cast out a line. And, you know, I'm sitting there with my Bible looking at her like, hey, ask me about it. Do it. You know, and I'm nudging her with it. You know, and no, I mean, she just, oh, you're a Christian, right? And she popped her gum, and... I remember a little piece of it went up her nose, and neither of us said anything, but we both knew what had happened. And, and, and I said, and, and, and maybe you would say the same thing. I said, yeah, I've been saved for seven years now. And she looked at me, and she said, really? What were you saved from? And to be honest with you, I never thought about that. <laughs> I mean, you, you understand what I mean when I say saved, and, and, and we all speak the same language, and, and so it's just a common uh, turn of phrase that we would say, I've been saved. And, and, but in her mind, were you drowning? Were you choking? Did you have cancer? Were you dying? I mean, what were you saved from? And, and, and I, 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 I got to confess that I, I, I laughed a, a little bit, and I said, well, I guess from the eternal flames of hell. <laughs> and she got up and walked away <laughs> and never came back to con conclude our conversation. But we have this language, and we call it, we call it Christianese, and it's this foreign language, and, and, and it's the, uh, the language of biblically literate believers, Right? 
and, and there are all kinds of words canonized in this vernacular. And one of these words, oh, don't fall asleep yet. And there are one of these words, uh, I know I didn't get a lot of sleep either. But uh, there, there are one of these words, and it's Pharisee, that we're very familiar with. That's going to be on the recording. Gil, can you edit that one out too? I asked you numerous times on Thursday. You're nodding. God bless you. Um, you know, <laughs> there, there, uh, Pharisee is one of these words, and it's simply by our familiarity with it. We all know it. And there are certain things that come to your mind as soon as you hear it. And tell me I'm wrong. You heard the word Pharisee, and, and you thought, that snake, the brood of vipers, who warned them of the wrath to come. These sick sinners that crucified our Savior. And we feel, and it's quite natural for us. And I'll tell you, it's because you've been conditioned to, to think that way because of your comprehensive Christian education. And you know the Bible. You're quite familiar with the Bible. And so you automatically go to this place. But 2,000 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that this was an evil enemy, you know, heavy laden with hypocrisy. You'd say, that, no, this person is a righteous person. This is a good person. And this is what that kind of person looks like. I mean, this is a proud national symbol. This is a missionary. Even Jesus recognized it himself in Matthew 23, 15. You can mark it down that the Pharisees were the first people to cast off into the world and evangelize the world to spread the word of Judaism like no one else ever before them. They would travel miles. They would travel far and wide. To reach out and make converts to Judaism, they were honored for their devotion. They took a vow to accept martyrdom, martyrdom rather than sin in the slightest way. They would rather die. It's down to the finest detail. They studied the scripture, sought to live their lives according to the scripture. They were often bruised and bloodied as a result of their devotion to scripture. You know, disciplined life, a moral life, a holy life, so evil? You would not say that this is an evil person. You'd say that this is a righteous person. So much so that when they would pass by a girl, they would cover their eyes and fall down hills. You'd read the Talmud, and it calls these people bloody Pharisees. And they'd be walking around Israel, and if you've ever seen any pictures of Israel, you know that it's quite rocky and always bumpy. It's a crowded community. They'd cover their eyes completely. That they wouldn't sin in their heart or in their mind. I don't want to look upon that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to be distracted by that. They'd go tumbling down hills. They're always nursing cuts and broken bones. But they would say, be holy, even as your Lord God is holy. And these are those that walked the straight and narrow path of righteousness and sanctification. And dare I say... Listen, dare I say that if you saw someone in the church today that lived this way, you would say, well, this person should be a pastor. Now, this person should be a church leader. I mean, this is the most sanctified saint I've ever seen. This is what a good Christian looks like. You'd hold them up and you'd exalt them. You wouldn't look at them and say, Oh, oh, that, that, that guy, he just, he just helped an old lady cross the street. How does he sleep at night? It doesn't make rational sense. 
You wouldn't see him write a big check for an orphanage and say, oh, well, you are just the definition of evil. Oh, there's, there's Hitler and Stalin and Charles Manson. Then there's you. You disgust me. No, you wouldn't think that. You wouldn't say that there. And so you can't say that here, and I know you want to hate them. But first, I want you to see them. Not as a Christian, but as they were. Listen, a good person. I want you to see them that way. And then this is that person. This is the good person. But we turn our eyes away from the pious Pharisee to the broken publican. And you're like, Michael, why did you pick publican? It does mean tax collector. But nobody said that in about 100 years. Well, because it rhymes with broken. And I like to rhyme things. So that's why I picked it. <laughs> so you can mark it down, the broken publican. He's this tax collector here in our story. And, and, and if you were reading this 2,000 years ago, if you were in the audience of Christ... And you would say, no, here's the enemy of our story. Now, this is the sick sinner. This person is a traitor. They were the shame of the nation. Oh, the Romans had come in and they'd taken over Israel. They're occupying that land. And the Jews were allowed to remain under heavy taxation. But it's not taxation the way that we would think of it. And I think that's where we go wrong in reading the scriptures here. And we think of taxation, and we pay taxes, and for, and for the most part, that money stays in our society, right? I mean, it goes towards social security, it goes towards the military, goes towards schools, and so on. I never thought that I would be talking about taxes in a message, but this is what happens when you get old. And, you know, it's, it's like, this is, but this is what happens to our money. That money stays in our society for the most part. Now, you can argue over the way it's used, and I'm sure you all have various opinions on it. And you, you, you know, you, you want to fight about it, but that's not what's happening here. And that's not what's talking about here. This isn't that kind of tax collector. And this kind of tax collector collected money so that you weren't killed by the enemy. And this money didn't stay in your society. It went to another society. So you would write your check as if today, at the end of every month, to Canada so that the Canadians didn't come down here and kill you. And God bless you if you're Canadian. They're very happy and healthy people. I'm sure they're quite sweet, and, and they would never do anything like that, so malicious. But Isaac got a chuckle out of it, so I'm glad. You lived close to Canada, right? And he nodded, the gentle heart that he is. But th this is, this is the, the way that it worked in Scripture, and, 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 and you would resent those people. You, you would resent at the end of every month having to write that check to another society to throw your money away to them, to, to just spare your life for another month so you wouldn't be taken by them. But I'll tell you, more than you resenting writing that check to them, you would resent one of your brothers and sisters taking that check from you to give to them. And I'll tell you, even more than that, you would resent that brother or sister pocketing that check and then telling you to write another one because he seems to have misplaced the first one. And this is what happened. And these positions were auctioned off to the most filthy, <laughs> scummy people in society that didn't mind robbing their own people. 
And they would take in over and above that which was required because they had to pay off everyone above them that allowed them to occupy this position. And so you read the story and you think that these people were profiting, profiting off their own people's pain and they were despised by the Jews. And I must say, rightly so. And the Jews here in the story and in the audience that day would look at them and they would say, how can they do such a thing? They're making money off our misfortune. How can they do that to me? They're robbing me. And, and, and there's no forgiveness for such as these that would sell out their own people. There's no salvation for them. There's no redemption for them. And how can a just God not condemn them? Tell you, the, the, the fire of hell was created for them. And I hope it's hot enough for them. And this was the heart of the Jew that day. But now that, uh, that, that we've met the enemy of our story, and we've met the good person in our story, before we get to the, the silent third person in the story, let's understand the context of the story that in verse 9, Jesus was speaking to those that thought themselves to be quite righteous. And the Pharisees were in the audience that day, but you can be sure that some of Jesus' believers were there and that they needed to hear the words too. In verse 10, we begin, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. See that the Pharisee set out to pray. But somewhere along the way, he forgot what he was doing, so he started talking to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And two men went up to the temple and won this Pharisee, and I'd love to say that Jesus is exaggerating the story, that no man could be this prideful and arrogant you can actually find a reliable historical record of worse. You know, a first century rabbi, a contemporary of Christ, Rabbi Simeon, he unabashedly claims to be the most righteous man alive, and he writes this. If there were only 30 righteous persons in the world, I and my son would make two of them. If there were only 20, I and my son would be of the number. If there were but 10, I and my son would would be of that number as well. But if there were but five, I and my son would be of the five. If there were but two, I and my son would be of the two. And if there were but one, I would be that one. That's a heavy thing to consider. You know, I'm the most righteous man alive. I'm better than all of them. I do more than all of them. I'm busier than all of them, so I'm superior to all of them. And he's trusting in all of his accomplishments to save him. Fasting and prayer. And the louder he says it, the more he hopes that he can believe it. Because it defies the truth that's hidden deep in his heart. The truth that Paul recognized in Romans chapter 7. He said, despite all that I do, there's still this aching sense inside of me that it's not enough and that I'm missing the one thing, the more important thing. And I've got it all backwards. I've got it all wrong. And certainly all these things that he was, he was doing are good things. And prayer and fasting. It's a glorious thing. 
It's no substitute for the one thing. And the nagging sense in his heart be a constant curse upon his mind that all of his attempts for perfection simply proved how imperfect he really was. And he would say, well, at least I'm better than that person. (laughs) And isn't this the way we think? And you never go right to the top when you think that way. I would never compare myself to Sam or another pastor or anybody else. I would look for the lowest, scuzziest person I could find and say, well, at least I'm better than them. And you say, well, at least I do more than them and, 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 and I'm, I'm better than them and that's got to count for something when it's all counted up one day. He's trusting in that to save him. He is missing the greater truth. And around the corner stands our second man still a far distance off. He wouldn't look up in verse 13. And he beat his breast. He said, God, have mercy on me, sinner. I want to talk about this man that that this publican was a Jew. Right? And I think that this will be specifically applicable for many people. So those of you that might be drifting... I know it's quite warm and comfortable in the room today. My voice is soothing and it lulls you to sleep. (laughs) Oh, just close your eyes. I was about to start singing a lullaby. That wouldn't be appropriate. But Gil will edit it out. The man was a Jew. He was raised in the temple, educated in the temple. He spent his youth in the house of God. You might well say that He was born into a moral family, right? You might well say that that he was a man uh, raised under the tradition of his parents and his heritage, but for the love of money, he stepped outside the church to seek satisfaction elsewhere, and you begin to see that he's more than just a flat character, that this is, in fact, the story of so many in the church today, today that have determined that church cannot save them and that satisfaction is out there in what other people are doing. And after all, they seem to be having a good time with it, a lot of fun with it, so I'll go ahead and go out there and try it. And so he left his childhood behind and as the prodigal stepped outside his father's house, as the years went by, just as we see in the story of the prodigal, he began to be in want. And what does that mean? He began to see a lack in his own heart that there was something missing, that there was a deficit there, there was a void that had been created there. And there was nothing to quiet the craving inside of him. And as the Pharisee would see that same void and fill it with righteousness and with works, He would look to himself and say, well, I gave that up a long time ago, and that's not for me. So I'll fill it with with wickedness and filth. They set out on two completely different paths, both trying to accomplish the exact same thing. And you see here the two sides of the coin which represent all humanity in this single parable. The good person trying to answer that calling and that craving 
with good things. And the wicked person trying to answer that calling and that craving with wickedness. And no matter how loud and how fervent both of them are, they're both coming up empty. Daily this man would pass the temple, but determined not to go in. After all, he'd decided long ago not to burden the priest with his trivialities. Knew after all, it was probably just some phantom inkling inside of his heart, some residual mythology from his childhood left over that made him feel bad. And so he could dig in his heels all the deeper, seek satisfaction elsewhere, and keep going the way he's going. And I was 16 years old and intoxicated, vandalizing a church. And my friends asked me, why a church? And to my great shame, I share the story. And I said, to get back at them, to show them, to shame them, to prove to them that I don't need them. I want nothing to do with them. But it wasn't the truth. I wanted desperately to come home as the prodigal to quiet the voice inside of me that beckoned me, that called me, that said, simply return to me. And you hear that voice today in so many areas and down different avenues of your own heart. And it says, come home. You don't need to be out wandering. Come home. You can't fill it with good working. Come home. And it's not a job to do. It's a relationship to cultivate. Just simply come home to your father's home as the prodigal. I wanted to be with them. I so desperately wanted to return to that place of my youth, but I couldn't because I'd given it up long ago. And I was over that, and I was done with that, and I knew better than that. And the Pharisee and the prodigal found themselves in the same place, unworthy to return, day and night, the hand of God, just as for, for this publican, is heavy upon me. And scripture is true when it says in Psalm 139, verse 7, and you can mark it down, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 16, I never read the verse, but I was familiar with the tyranny that it brought to me and how often it followed me and tortured me. There was no refuge for this man in wealth or in wickedness. And I'm convinced that for the Pharisee, all of his works and righteousness, there was no refuge for him either. And what do I still need to do? And what am I missing? What position should I be filling? What job should I be occupying? What needs to happen? And, and so many would say, well, well I, I want to come back. What do I do? And, and it's easy for us to say, just go to church. But is the answer there at church? Well, what do I do? Just pray. But is the answer there in prayer? What do I do? 
And two men set out that day on very different paths. Pharisee trying to quiet his frightened heart. And maybe today that's you. And you're the good person. And by the mere fact that you're here today, I'm going to say you're a lot of good persons. That's what you are. You came to church today. But are you trusting in church for your salvation today? That's two very different questions, isn't it? The Pharisee that day set out doing his good works because he had a business mentality with God. And God was his boss. Right? We're all Americans. We're all capitalists. And God bless it, it's a grand country. But we slip easily into a business mentality with God. And so if I'm doing a good job, then I can keep my job. If I'm doing a bad job or not keeping up at my job, then I'm going to lose my job. And I'm out on the street. And so when we're doing good, we feel good. And when we slip up, we feel lost. We feel fired. And if that's the story of your Christianity, then I'm sorry. You're still circling the temple. But you haven't yet come home. We need to abandon the Pharisee mentality and like the publican, beg for mercy. Let me tell you, what you do is good. Coming to church is good. But why do you do it? If you do it for any other reason than to please and glorify God, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. You know, I, 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 I pray because I want to talk to God. I want to get to know God. And I believe in God. So I know that no matter what I come to him with, I can lay at his feet and he'll pick it up and take care of it. And I don't have to worry about it. And it's like, why do I read my Bible? I read my Bible because, uh, I mean, it's, it's the story of God. And if I love God, want to get to know God, well, then it's all right there for me. I mean, you can enter right into to intimate fellowship with him. You can read directly of him. You know, I don't fast as often as I should. You might be able to tell that. But when I do, when I do, it's simply to, to strip away the material world so that I'm not distracted by it. And, and I see that I'm not completely dependent upon it. That, that I, I can do these things and be blessed by them and, and bless God because of them, but I'm not saved by them. And I'm not a good person as a result of them. I don't do it because when I do it, I'm saved. <laughs> or I'm going to do it because I'll get a bigger house in heaven. You know, on the intersection of Holy Street and Righteousness Way. The two-story place across the street from Hezekiah. That's not why you should do it. It's not why we should do it. We should do it just to develop intimacy with the Lord knowing that it's not going to give me a greater standing with the Lord. And let me tell you, sometimes this is so obvious to me, and maybe this morning it's very obvious to you as well, and I'm broken and I'm on my knees like the publican, but other times, let me say this, listen, other times I can be exactly like the Pharisee, and I'm a million miles away from God. 
but I'm still working for God as if I was walking with God. And that's exactly what these Pharisees were doing. And that's exactly what we can easily fall into doing. Just keep on going. And we lose the point of why we're going. And in verse 14, we're introduced to the seemingly silent third character. And Jesus says, I tell you in verse 14 that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. God would say, and, and this is why I love Junior's prayer um, before the message, because it was all there. It's all God is saying is, is what I desire is honesty and humility for you to come before me for mercy because each and every one of you needs it. You're just two sides of the same coin. The coin is fallen humanity. My best days... I'm the broken publican. I get up in the morning, like you get up in the morning. We all get up in the morning. If you don't, I guess you're dead. You wouldn't be here. Is that dark? Corinne gave me a look. We all get up in the morning. And on my best days, I open my eyes and I say, God, you did not get a treat when you got me. (laughs) But you knew exactly what you were getting when you got me. And I'm still just as in need of mercy today as I was when I was 16. And so I say, Lord, forgive me and use me and help me to show others the love that you had for me and have for me and the love that you have for them. Help me to accept them as you accept them and help me to continue to reach out to them as you reach out to them. But I got to say, it's very easy for me to get up and a day turns into a week and where's the time gone? And it's work and it's school and it's church and Bible study and it all just kind of flows together and I think I'm okay. But that's, that's the problem, isn't it? And God would say, no, you're not okay. And you're not being honest with me. And this is what I see today when I read the story. And God would say, this is what I want. I just want honesty. I I want you to admit something to me. I want you to say that you're like Martha and you're busy with much activity, but Mary's chosen the better place. She's sitting at her Savior's feet. All all I ever wanted, I I don't care about your works. They're good. They're great. I don't care about that. All I wanted was for you to be like this public and to just come before me and offer nothing to me. And we in our Christianity are like a great train pushing through the world and and, and we see the progress that comes from our lives and we say, well, I'm moving forward and I'm always doing and I'm always working. And and Christ just comes along and he bats the, the train off the tracks and says, this is what I want. I just want you to be derailed for a while. I just want you to fall on your face before me, to just sit with me, to just spend time with me, to cultivate a relationship with me. And there's a terrible idea in the church today that we need to come here with happy faces and pretend like our lives are perfect and that everything's fine. And Jesus says that the one that was saved from this story, the one that's right in this story, is the wicked sinner that came in and said, I'm not fine, I'm not happy, and everything's not perfect and perky. My life's fallen apart and it's ugly. 
And I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm going to be humble with you. And I'm not going to keep on just progressing and chugging forward and saying, you know, all's well in Michael's world. Because all is not well. And daily I need to recognize that. Often I need to come before the Lord with that. And my greatest fear, and listen, my greatest fear is that we would leave today like the Pharisee left this day. The Pharisee walked away a good person believing that he was still just a good person. He walked away from the temple fully convinced of his own righteousness because of his own good works. And how many come to the church today and they walk in and then they walk out exactly the same, a good person? but sadly unrepentant and consequently unsaved. Just to simply come in and say, I don't got it all together, and what I need to do is come home. God bless you, small child. You stirred by the sermon. I'm going to take credit for it. And to simply come home is a start. You know, in Luke chapter 15 is the story that I'm constantly alluding to, the story of the prodigal son. And, and I'm sure you're all quite familiar with it. Many of you appear to be very seasoned saints, and, and so you, you would know the story thoroughly. I constantly return to this story in Luke 15 to always check that it doesn't change. Because it is admittedly one of my great fears that one day in the story, when the son comes running home, the father's going to lock the door. And he's going to say, no more grace here. There's no more forgiveness here. And you left and returned one too many times. And, and, and the open arms are going to close. But it never does. And it never will. There's always open arms for the person that simply comes home. It's a picture of God himself to the pious Pharisee living righteously, and maybe that's you disconnected from God personally, or the broken publican laden with wickedness and sought satisfaction down every avenue of the world, circling the temple and finally coming home. I'll end by saying this because I've already kept you longer than I do desire to. That about a month after I vandalized that church, I was... I had found myself walking down the corridors of that church and falling upon the altar of the church. And I'll tell you the words that I said when I got there. It was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and he did, right? And he will today. And let me simply say, because the words are appropriate for all of us, wherever you are and whatever you're holding back, let us come home together simply confess with one another 
that we're in greater need of him than we often admit and that we're much more distant from him than we often acknowledge. And mercy is the key. It's offered freely to us all. Let's go ahead and pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time together that we've shared, or this opportunity for us to return to you. Lord, maybe although we've been physically in your temple, we've been circling the temple for years, too ashamed to come back to that which we once knew on an earlier date, and that which we now humbly acknowledge has slipped away. We, like the publican, have gone our own way. It can happen so easily in our mind and in our heart to drift from you, to keep on pushing forward as that great train. I pray, Lord, that we'd be derailed by you and have a moment that would carry out the doors that we would acknowledge simply our need for you fall on our face before you and simply say, God, have mercy on me because today I'm still a sinner just as I was when I was 16. I'm still in desperate need of you. Lord, I thank you that you are that father with arms wide open, never changing to welcome us as we return home. Father, I praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.